So it is really great to have Simone back with us. Um, she has been in your shoes uh, multiple times. She's been a resident here four times um, and twice as a VSC fellow. Um, she's the author of five collections, most recently uh, Wolf Centos, as I mentioned, um, out from Saraband Books. And I would uh, also mention uh, author of Orange Crush, a uh, great selection of poems, and uh, Lamp Black and Ash, which was a New York Times book review editor's choice um, uh, in, I think, 2005. Um, her honors include uh, two VSC fellowships, um, awards from the Illinois Arts Council, um, the, uh, from the Poetry Society of America, and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. Um, the work, though, I'm sure speaks for itself, and it's just a really great pleasure to have her back. So help me give a warm welcome to Simone Munch. Thank you. You remember more than I do, Ryan. Before I talk, because I talk a lot, I'm going to start with this hex. Trouble came, and trouble brought greasy, ungenerous things. Poke root and bladder rack, chalk lines in bloody bedrooms, and black reptilian bags smelling of acetylene. Trouble came, and trouble sang, shush, shush, or tell, tell, for I alone will break your bones, as he bedded down for winter in a small, small town, smelling of cabbage and tripe where eight black chickens wandered the street. With trouble came clouds agitating the cows, their thick, ruminant bodies clogging up the riverbeds. Trouble came and sang, and fish turned belly up. House pets appeared in the well. Children started dying of oddities the small-town doctor could not name. Trouble houses, trouble towns, trouble came in 100 waves, in sparks and hexes with horse breath and spiny borders. Babies born with clubfoots and cleft lips, babies born with partial hearts and partial heads, and some just born plain dead. Trouble is and trouble was, and trouble came and sang, shush, shush, or tell, tell, in a small, small town. Um, I wanted to open with that. It gives you sort of a um, sense of who I am as a writer. And then um, I will talk briefly. I want to first thank Gary and Ryan, Lori, everyone that has invited me back. Um, and Ricky um, Ducanet is here. She's visiting as a painter, but she will be your writer, um, who's also going to be presenting, I think, later this month. Unfortunately, I will be missing her, but you are in for a treat. Um, she's absolutely fantastic, and I'm so excited to be here with her. Um, I wanted to um, do this reading because I think um, the time allotted is a long reading, and so because I've been here on your side, right, a residence four times, um, Ryan and I were talking about this earlier, when a lot of the artists present, they present with slides and they talk about sort of the evolution of their art. So I thought I would do an evolution of my writing. 
um, starting from my first book. I won't go through all my books, but bo- but most of them. In my first couple, I'll just read a poem or two from each, because I thought it might be interesting to you to th- um, think about the processes in which writers think about books, how they come to be, how we think about them. Um, and so I read that first poem to give you a little background about myself. I'm from the South. I'm from a very small town in the South. Um, and when I say small, um, 50 people. Um, at one point, there was a grocery store slash gas station that has since imploded on itself. It's a segregated cemetery um, and my grandmother's house. That's pretty much the town. Um, my own house there burned down when I was um, 16. And so my first book sort of came out of this southern background. I grew up poor and, you know, poor by whose standards? Um, less poor than others, more poor than some, but um, my family was on food stamps, so that sense of of southern poverty, right? Um, And my first book was sort of working out all of these things that I felt were so cliched about the South, but nevertheless true. Violence, poverty, um, religious constraints, etc., and the poem I just read, actually, oddly enough, um, in Burlington today, I was listening to Trump over the um, television. But that poem I wrote listening to Bush and thinking about trouble is coming um, and how it's always been coming. So I thought I would read from my first book, just one poem. Um, it was called The Air Lost in Breathing. And this book was, it's my first book, right? So those of you who've written first books, you know you put everything into it. They're very raw. Um, and this book was particularly concerned with a few things. Mainly, they're, they're very narrative or scenic mode. Um, you could be more dismissive, I guess, and call them that. Um, but they were very entrenched in this idea that I wanted to write a book that was for people that were not necessarily poets. So I wanted accessibility. Um, That was my main key. Um, And so when people ask about audience, my audience was my sister and my mother. And so I'll read the last poem in the um, book. And this is a poem I wrote in my early 20s, um, which was quite a few years ago. Um, And it's called Eating Olives in the House of Heartbroken Women. My sister leans against the stove, nibbling olives. Like a Rossetti painting, she is pure mischief and melancholy. She is not me, but she is part of me. She is everything and nothing. She is flesh and fault. Part solitude, part social, like an ocean with boats bobbing on it. Her face so sad it breaks plates, the floor littered with pits and tears. We eat elitzis, the sweet Crete varietal, atalanti, purple, green, and plump, Spanish olives stuffed with pimentos, dragon eyes, we call them, small orbs tasting of oceans and distance. Picking olives on the Turkish countryside years ago is the closest we've come to religion. My sister is backlit from the open window, unaware of her loveliness, the only sound, the chew of fruit. Faith is in small things, she says, passing me the jar that smells of creosote and roses. 
Outside, the sky spirals in a pink froth. Here we are, her face, my face. In this kitchen, the light has a sharpness that makes our eyes ache as we watch the cat stalk a cardinal across the yard. We are bone and break. There is a country in my stomach as the sun honeycombs through the screen. In this house of heartbroken women, two girls lean into the light spitting pits, learning the difference between sanctuary and salvation. So leap ahead a few years, um, and I'm usually about on the five-year book plan. Um, I'm in graduate school. I'm getting my Ph.D., at University of Illinois in Chicago, and um, I was in the program for writers, so we write a book as our, our process, but during this period I was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer um, that at the time they had only seen in middle-aged to elderly men. Um, and so they didn't quite know what to do with me um, because they really had no idea um, what the outcome was going to be. But I spent a year, though I was in grad school, um, with the help of amazing teachers. Basically, for those of you who've been ill, it becomes a full-time job in and out of the hospital doing radiation and chemo. But the stranger part of this, um, because we all get ill, we all die, right? That's part of the process of life. But the more surreal part of it is that the day that I was diagnosed, um, I, my best friend, Lanko, was leaving for India. And I'd gone to my doctor's office and was waiting, and she said, check the news. And I couldn't because I was in the doctor's office, but um, I listened to the radio. And I was listening to the radio when my doctor came in, and the news on the radio was that the World Trade Centers were being destroyed. Probably 30 seconds after that, my doctor walks in and says, I have good news and I have bad news. This is not a joke. Um, and the bad news, of course, was that I had cancer. So probably the most surreal day of my life, I remember just sort of being in a fugue and floating around in Chicago, in Chicago on the buses, not knowing who to tell, um, and not wanting to tell my friend because she was on her way to India, um, though she was delayed, and also feeling very, very fortunate, but it, it's hard to explain that. I think that came retrospectively, right, because you learn in that moment that your own singular grief is a, so insignificant in the larger scape of things. So why is that important? Because it made me completely changed my poetic um, aesthetics. Um, I was no longer interested in narrative, and everyone said, well, you have to write about your cancer. You have to write about your experience. And I said, well, I'm not interested in those narratives anymore. They don't interest me anymore. Um, and so I turned to surrealism. I was very fascinated with the whole surrealist movement. And during that time, I fell in love with um, a famous surrealist poet, Robert Desnos. And he was sort of my muse um, through this whole book. So for those of you who don't know, he was part of the French resistance during World War II. Um, he was incarcerated in the death camps. And there are many legends about him. And whether they're true or not, no one knows. But ultimately, they always led to him being an incredibly kind and generous person. But you can see that via his poetry. And he wrote this wonderful letter to his wife, Yuki. It's my cat 
Scott's name, by the way, um, telling her that he was okay um, and that he would be fine and he couldn't wait to smoke cigarettes with her again. And of course he wasn't. He was dying. Um, and then he was released, but two weeks after his release, he died from typhus at the age of 44. So that influenced me a lot, um, his work. And so these are much less narrative. They are um, in some ways not interested in narrative. They're much more interested in associative logic and sort of how language proximity creates identity. But I thought I would read to sort of link it to, to illness. This is the only poem in the book that directly deals with my illness. No other poem does, so no one knows that this book is about that period, which I'm actually happy about, um, because I want the poems to be read beyond my illness. But this, I'll read this one and, and one other, and it's called Viewing Rain from a Hospital Bed. Something sidles up to me in the dark. I taste it, this disease I can't speak. I listen to rain, tangled branches scar on my chest. It shoots, you lick it, how is it? Don't go where you don't belong. It's how you hear it, scar, emblem of chance, unnameable odor purling out of it and over you, stifling you in bed. But what if, like an axolotl, its quickness I visit and slip coiling into light. Not scar, not that voice of ache in tomorrow or bone crack for having moved too fast. What if held beneath sea it turned a beautiful blue, an impenetrable blue? Could all that liquid be the source of fall? Here beneath flesh is an eye with diamond bones some split in rot, others rain sparks, sage blooming additions. Here it ends. Could I erase in lamp black rain the moon flickering? Um, and then this next poem I thought I'd read, because it's a little more fun, though the political um, subtext is not fun. When I was a kid, I was always obsessed with the word um, sex pot, and I wanted to be a sex pot. And then as I got older and started um, examining language as a poet, I was like, sex pot receptacle for semen, I think I will pass. Um, but I was very fascinated with this language, um, particularly in the 50s that women um, were referred to and how um, women are so located in terms of color with this concept of red. So this is called the OED defines red hot. She's a hot tomato, love apple, Marilyn Monroe's mink stole. Different guys have different names for dolls, such as broads, tomatoes. She's the woman loitering in the harbor, rhapsodic. She's bloodshot and bittersweet, cerise streak across her cheeks, blood-blistered auburn hair. She lingers in the arbor beneath mimosa trees, sipping Madeira, stuffing currants in her carmine mouth. She's rosy, rusty, ready. She's a red lighter, a scarlet starlet. She wears schoolgirl socks, a red fox, 
A fox is a girl. A fox is a chick, you see. She's sweet as pink zabaglioni. Steak tartare a la carte. She's brick and blush damask dangerous. Both Rose and Solferina, she drives a station wagon plagued by cherry air freshener and too tight puce shoes, her skin a detonating fuse. She's blousy, a cardinal flower, cinnabar scent, terracotta copper, from chestnut to cherry, she's your edible lady. A pepper, a snapper, a strawberry, red pecune, there's some red hot ones up you know where in Piccadilly. Pink as locks, flush of lobster, she's a risk and a rush fire water, lava. She bristles and bridles in a vermeil seizure. The bride-to-be is probably some frightful red-hot mama. She's coral nails, crimson lips, geranium window seal. She's a rubified rubric. She's you and your abused and suffused, marooned in red, tinted woman, caught in a Pompeii cauldron of poppies, rubies, a red-hot sex pot. So that poem, in some ways, leads directly to my third book, which was called Orange Crush. Um, and I became very fascinated in terms of this book um, with theme. And I was doing research and I discovered um, in Restoration England, there were these figures called orange girls, um, and this was new to me, but it was a term that was used for young women who sold themselves at the theater, and they were, when I say young women, 12, 13, selling them their sexual services in order to be able to eat. So it became a necessary um, evil in some ways for their own livelihood, meaning to live, to actually be able to exist. And I was very fascinated um, in the ways in which women find themselves in multiple binds. And I do think, not that men are exclusionary to this, but that women move through the world, many women, with this low-grade anxiety that comes from always having to be aware of your surroundings, always having to be on guard, whether you're cognizant of it or not. Um, and so this book really deals with the various binds women find themselves in, um, the patriarchy being, you know, the proscenium arch, but within that, the religious binds, I'm, I grew up Southern Baptist, right, um, medical binds, being in the hospital for a year will teach you the ways in which women are subjugated. Um, and so the book, though, very purposely moves from dark to light. So it moves from record of real women who have been murdered, assaulted, um, and then there's a suite which deals with all the ways in which women are cast as victims and dead girls, which is a cultural obsession, I think. Um, but I think for women, it's more than a cultural obsession because when we're born, we're often devalued. We're, we're considered subsidiary. I think that's changing. But still, I mean, if you look at our country, there's nothing that permeates it more than misogyny, as far as I'm concerned. Um, 
And so I'm going to read from the suite that sort of examines these dead girls. Um, But then the book moves, it arcs into recasting those victims into women with voices. Um, And so there's a series of prose poems that all highlight living women that are refuting silence by being writers themselves and speaking out. So I'll read a few um, from this, and the last one, I'll, I'll do one of the language portraits of one of the real living women. So this is an orange crush, of course, the play on crush being girlhood and innocence, but of course, with that innocence, you get crushed and buried and annihilated. And this is called Psalm. Fever-damaged girls light up in a row, spells and vixens and dead calico kittens. The convent said fire, the fire said kindness, kindness took a victim. Bone bonnets for the little girls sleeping and blue beds for their snap necks. A kiss is a bite, is a bit, slid in the clouds above a slit throat. A black coat and a black glove went missing. One girl was fallen in cold golden light, girl killed by frost, a man's hand on her starched white collar, undone and saturated with woodburn while snow descended like laudanum. Doctor, come quick. The little girls are sick, their voices muffled by smoke and wool, hands in psalms. Hurry, hurry, it's the eclipse. The girls aren't breathing and the chapel is leaking. Doctor, come quick. Someone's a heretic and someone's a witch. I just saw the witch, by the way, which is fabulous. Any of you have seen it? Anyone seen it? So good for all of you painters. Um, Sorry, I'm just checking my time. And then this, this continues the suite. Tongues harvest petals, larvae. The back of the throat is petticoat pink. The girl in the dirty dress is dead. I wish I were a fish lit by phosphorescence. I wish I were in Spain. I wish I was bluegilled and beautiful. A man folds the girl up in newspapers, her wet hair, a string of taffy, a rope, something unraveling inside the man's eye. When he killed her, he said, listen. When he killed her, he said, your soul, orange girl. He said, windowsill. He said, stone. While alive, she replied, oil slick, door jam, something passing through my right eye, black cars and carousels, pretty maids all in a row. Hunter, I hand you a red sweater, whisper of precipitation, trigger happy laughter in the light latticed forest. You burn my nightgown to undergrowth in this feral season, overseer to all small deaths, your lips an orange smear of cordiality, your rifle's leverage cocks your spine, my skin is soft. The safety's off. 
Sweater girl, elevator girl, factory girl, and snarling her pin curls. Gibson girl, Varga girl, au pair girl, bunny girl, flower girl, career girl, chorus girl, college girl, cover girl, geisha girl, party girl, wayward girl, servant girl, bachelor girl, campfire girl, working girl, give it a whirl girl, bar girl, call girl, check girl, farm girl, shop girl, street girl, sausage curl girl, poor girl, you speak like a green girl, between two girls which hath the merriest eye, flint and pearl alike, my cold, cold girls. And then I'll just read one. So then it arcs. This is the third section where the rim, women are recast from victim to victor. And I'm going to read this one because it directly leads into my next project. And this is um, The Arsonist, and they're all starring these living poets. The Arsonist, and they're all prose poems, which I did think I would never write, um, but the form found me. The Arsonist starring Brandy H., her calendar charm kickstarts men's lips while her wrist drip with doorbells. When the doctor gazed at her, a nurse parade passed in his head. Thread of alizarin through her hair, she revs her engine with stars and white thigh highs while choir boys chant holy, holy in the burlesque of her hip swing. Though she was born at a roadblock, her legato knees open for the congregation. Murmur of campfire under her hair, murmur of bass notes, rubber gloves, sugar, she says, my lips are firebrands that'll make your gold cross vibrato. The boys saw in prescribed light her thorned orbit. Her breath full of footprints and soporific ruin. Her arm an empty room. So Brandy um, is a poet who introduced me um, to this form that I'm going to read from. Um, this is the book that um, is on the table, Wolf Sintos. And it was the, um, the next two projects I'm going to read from were both written here. Um, and this took five years. But I was going through a period after Orange Crush where I just became shut down by poetry. Um, and what does that mean? I mean, for me, poetry is everything. It's poetry community. It's reading of other people. It's interacting. So it's not just the act of writing, right? But I felt, um, I was reading a lot of blogs, and there was so much vitriol in these blogs, and so much showmanship, that I sort of just fell out of love with the poetry world. And so I stopped being interested in writing, not reading, but writing. Um, and so I just started reading again and rereading people whose lives were on the line to write poetry. Um, and in doing that, Brandy introduced me to this um, form 
called the Cinto, which was from actually the fourth century, so it's been around for hundreds of years, but no one's really done much with it. Um, it's usually often used for comedic effect, um, though Annie Diller did um, a book called Mornings Like This. She doesn't call it Cintos, but it in effect is, um, and I think Julie Carr has a book called 100 Notes on Violence, which she doesn't refer to as Cintos either, but to me they're very Cinto-esque. But what the Cinto does is it's a patchwork form. And so you are taking fragments and lines from other poets and weaving them into a new garment. So you're using pre-existing text basically um, to refashion something that you call your own. Um, and I'm less interested in calling it my own than putting writers across centuries, across continents, into conversation with one another. And to me, the equivalent is the musical mashup, right? So if you like Kanye, he's essentially doing centos in some ways. I just don't think he's as interested in tribute. Um, and that's no, I actually, I, I have mixed feelings about Kanye. But someone like Greg Gillis, Girl Talk, um, very similar and so this book took me five years to write, but it's all, um, it's all found language sutured together to create text. And the two things I discovered in writing this was that the wolf became the rhetorical spine. Um, why do I love the wolf? I'll save that for another conversation. But the wolf is just one of those symbols that has so many permeations, right, and so many connotations. And so, um, and I found that, again, throughout history, and no matter the country or the geography, writers love the wolf. So I was easily able to amass hundreds of lines with the wolf in it. And that would, and the only stipulation besides the fact that they were centos was that every poem had to have a wolf in it. Um, and so I will read you some of these. The other thing I was going to say, um, and it's pertinent just because I'm going to give this talk tomorrow, um, they ultimately became very elegiac. Um, and I'm going to talk about the elegy tomorrow and how do you create an elegy out of found material. Well, so the first one I'll read is straight up elegy because it is written to a poet who died a couple of years ago. Some of you may be familiar with him, Jake Adam York. Um, and this was for Jake Adam York. And the titles are all called Wolf Sinto. In the wood world's torn despair, where winter wolves bark amid waste of snow, and last year's leaves are smoke, compose the dark, compose the last words still tender on the eardrum, as evidence collects beneath the canceled stars. Today, I have done nothing. Nor could I recognize you in the haze with a plain face hiding thousands of other faces, fixilculated, beautiful. The black waltz starts, the gods don't speak. For a long time, there was no sun. Like a midnight mockingbird, you appear now singing in the foliage, the joy of your approach, perhaps for the last time. Wolf Sinto. Nothing remains of you. 
The city rotates in the canal's fluorescence, caught between the rains of obese trees, dripping a thousand sugars and whirls of more carnal flowers. I go out to the road and I listen to this fouled landscape that's sunk into itself. Wolves yawn in front of the open cage. Nothing glistens under the arcades. In the park's electric light breaks through the branches. A man waves from his spandex biking outfit. Everything else is hushed like a much-hunted animal fixing us in her eyeshine. We live in a world of motion and distance. No matter where we go, we always arrive too late. And whatever houses we return to in this stuffed masquerade, we are at a party that doesn't love us. It's one of my favorite end lines of any of these poems, and it's by Thomas um, Transtromer. Um, so I think um, for time's sake, I'm going to just read a couple from the new project, and then I thought I'd open it up for questions. So the next project I was working on, I'm always collaborating. For me, poetry is about collaboration. So the Sintos came out of collaborating mainly with dead writers, some living. Um, and then whenever I get bored I of my own um, ruts and ticks, I collaborate. So in between all of this, I did a collaboration with a poet named Philip Jinx called Disappearing Address, and we wrote a book of epistolary poems. And so I decided I wanted to do that again. Um, and so I just finished, while I'm here, I'm actually editing it and sending it. Um, it comes out next year. Um, and the title's called Suture, and it's a book of sonnets written with the um, poet Dean Rader from um, San Francisco. And our stipulation was just that we, again, borrowed a line from a pre-existing sonnet as our title and first line. And then we built on the tradition of the sonnet from these pre-existing sonnets. And whereas with Philip and I, we accreted lines, literally line by line, like a brick builder, Dean and I did it more stanzaically. But the idea, of course, with for me with collaboration is that it shouldn't read like, though there's multivocality, it should read as though it's a singular voice. Um, and so I'll just read a couple of these so you can get a sense. And I'll start with one that I think, um, let's see what time it is. I will read one, two, I'll read these three. So these two, I think, sort of tie to my obsessions with women and silencing, um, and then the last one is more sonnet-esque. Now I see them sitting me before a mirror. Now I see them sitting me before a mirror whispers a sound like grinding, candle soap, black lines on the skin over my heart, someone's god in the air above my head, a cup next to an axe. The night's bridal chamber shuts me in, seizure of wind and entropy within these walls. I cast spells on the copy of myself, marionette for a stranger stage, string and retraction of string, spotlight and trapdoor, hooks and rope. Pain is a mask we all wear. Regrets a gun we've all shot. 
Collared in loneliness and odalisk on display, they douse me in rose water, burn my writings, and then doll me up for slaughter. You thought I was the kind of animal who would first purr, splay my belly before I bite. I am not feline or femme fatale, despite your desire for me to be your feral other. But this is no cartoon. You're not in some fairy tale. You're in line seven, and my claws are sharp. Here, feel, soon, it will be time to eat, and you look divine. Succumb to my wolf face, your own savage sweet tooth. Lick my fur until there's nothing but flesh, no more facade, no camouflage, only revelation, the heart's reddest rifle. Let's be honest, you love hiding, but I love hunting. Let's see who's the best. I'm a vegetarian, and I always get such glee out of reading, but I love hunting. Um, and then I'll close with this, which I think is more, um, it, it, well, it takes a Gerard Manley Hopkins line, so how could it not read like a sonnet? I think where from and bound, I wonder where and who and when and which, and I would stitch thunder to air to blue to the wound star of you. I know the sound of clutch and glitch, gash and gone, the carmine charm of open mouths, rose clouds, I wound. The body's coil spring is both rupture and rapture, a woven sack of loss and plasma, suturing of sky to skull, of cloud to eye, and I shall ring the loud bell of these bones as one who owns the wings and knows the way to fly beyond this body's sad anatomy. When wind enters me as though closing a door, I am the frame, the flaw, the sky, and the scar. Thank you.